over the last few weeks. Uh, like many of you, I found myself just enthralled with uh, the, the situation going on with the, the Ocean Gate submersible and the, the tragedy that that, that that was for those individuals. Um, I, I, f- I found it kind of linking me back to uh, just some, some research on, on the Titanic. I've always been interested. I haven't done a lot of study on it, and I, and I realized I'd, I'd never written, uh, read a book on it. And so I, I decided over the last couple weeks I wanted to, to research uh, a, a good book on the Titanic. And so after some research, I found this book dated in 1955 by an author named Walter Lord, who wrote a book primarily based on eyewitness testimony. You know, we talk oftentimes about the, the credibility of the gospel accounts because it's based on eyewitnesses that the gospel writers interviewed and then compiled all that eyewitness testimony and then sent it toward us uh, so that we can benefit it from it today. And, and in the same way, I was intrigued by this author, Walter Lord, who interviewed some 60-plus survivors who were alive in the early 1950s, and then he writ, wrote and published a book in 1955 called a night to remember. Of particular interest to me was how did Christians on the doomed boat respond in those two hours and 40 minutes that it took it to sink? How did Christians on the boat process the inevitability of their death? So not a, lot of, not a lot of information, not a lot of testimony on this matter, but I did find bits and pieces in, in Walter Lord's work. A few prayed with the Reverend Thomas R. Biles, who was a second-class passenger. A few gathered in a huddle to pray with Reverend Thomas Biles. Some recited the Lord's Prayer together. One passenger, and his response stood out to me, Reverend Robert J. Bateman of Jacksonville, stood by as lifeboats were deployed and they were only gathering women and children into the lifeboats. He stood by and he watched his sister-in-law, Mrs. Ada Balls, enter a boat. And he says, if I don't meet you again in this world, he called out with confidence, I will in the next And then as the lifeboat was jerked down by the pulleys into the water, he took off his necktie and tossed it to her as a keepsake. Short account, what did Reverend Robert Bateman display with his death looming? Robert Bateman displayed confident hope before his pending death. How do Christians face death with confident hope? This is a question of utmost importance, and it's the very question that our text deals with today. And for our good, we're going to unpack it because it's something that we ought to think more about. How do we have confident hope in the face of our own looming death? Let's turn in our Bibles to the letter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the Bibles we've provided on your seats, you can find that on page 987, page 987. And this morning, we continue our sermon series that we began in early June in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, a series that we're calling Power for Life, Hope in Death. Power for Life, Hope in Death. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides us power to live this life well, and it provides us hope as we see, stare down death. Unless Jesus comes again, we all face the reality of death. How do we face it with confident hope? Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I'll read. The Apostle Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sounds of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, we have arrived at the central issue in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Now, we know that every issue that the Apostle Paul addresses in any of his letters are important. But as you study the letters of the New Testament, as you learn the contours of Paul's thinking, you will zero in on matters of utmost importance. The letter is leaning forward to chapter 4 because it's the very thing that they needed to hear. The hope that he holds out in chapter 4 is what they've been missing all along. This takes center stage here in the letter. What hope do Christians have who have died? That's the issue in the Thessalonian church. There have been some unexpected deaths in the community. We don't know the circumstances surrounding those deaths. We know that they were a persecuted church. Perhaps it was sickness. All we know is that people had died suddenly and the church was shaken because there's a feeling that those who've died, Christians who've died, will somehow miss out on the beauty and the glory of being with Jesus at his return. That's the issue at hand. What hope do Christians who've died have? Will they miss out on the beauty and the glory of Jesus at his return? It's a question at hand. So the outline of this passage unfolds in two parts. Two parts to this passage. First, a situation of deep despair. We see that in verse 13. A situation of deep despair, followed by a message of glorious hope. A message of glorious hope. Paul, the consummate pastor, is going to assuage their despair and their hopelessness by unpackaging this glorious message of hope before his Christian friends. So a situation of deep despair gives way to a message of glorious hope. And here's the take home. Here's the take home. Believers in Jesus 
whether dead or living at his return, will be gathered with him and will be with him for all eternity. Believers in Jesus, whether living or dead, at his return, will be gathered together with him and will be with him for all eternity. That's, that's the take home. That's the theme. Believers in Jesus, whether dead or living, will meet him as his, at his return and will be with him forever. It is hope on your darkest day. You and I, if we believe in Christ, will be with Jesus for all eternity. First, a situation of deep despair. Paul addresses the despair in verse 13. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. That's a collective term. He's not just speaking to men. He's speaking to men and women. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. Why would they be uninformed? I mean, these are Paul's people, people that he pastored, people that he taught. Well, if you look at the, the birth of the church in Acts chapter 17, we see that he spent three brief weeks with the people in Thessalonica, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, many of them responded and were converted by the grace of God. Many of them repented and believed in Jesus, became, Christian, uh, became Christians. A church was planted, but three weeks is a short time. He didn't have the opportunity to fully unpack all the nuts and bolts of Christian theology, particularly what happens at Christ's return. And so he's there, he's removed, he's chased out. We see this in chapter 2, verse 15. The hostile Jews in Thessalonica drove us out, Paul says, before he could fully teach them, grow them up through sound doctrine. And so they have this false notion that only living Christians who were alive at the return of Christ will participate in the blessings of Christ at his return. In other words, there's no hope for the dead in Christ. They're eternally lost. You can see the despair that would set in among loved ones in this fledgling church. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, we desire to come to you because we want to supply what is lacking in your faith. What's lacking in their faith? A full orb theology of the return of Christ and how he will gather Christians living and dead to be with him forever. That's what he wants to supply. That's the gap that he wants to fill in their theology. He just simply didn't have time to fully equip his friends on the return of Christ and the fate of deceased Christians. Notice how Paul describes death. This is strategic. Does he say death necessarily in this opening verse here? No, he, he speaks of death in a figurative word, asleep. A euphemism for death, asleep. This is strategic. Paul is reinforcing for his friends that before the power of the resurrected Lord... Your Christian death is but a slumber before the one who calls life from death. You're merely sleeping. This is exactly the way that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, approached death. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus reaches into the, the clutches of death and unbinds a little girl who's 12 years old, the daughter of a man named Jairus, a high-profile guy in the synagogue. He's desperate. His daughter dies. 
Jesus is on his way. They send messengers, says, it's too late, Jesus. Don't even bother coming. She's dead. And he looks at Jairus and says, do not fear, only believe. Let's keep going. And so they make it to Jairus' house. People are wailing, a great commotion, lots of crying. And Jesus is like, why are you all crying? Imagine saying that at a funeral. Jesus knows something that everybody else doesn't. He then says, the child is only asleep. She's not dead. And guess what the people do when he says that? They laugh at him. They laugh at him. Jesus knows something that they don't. Jesus has power that they don't. You see, Christian death is but a slumber before the power of the resurrected Lord. A little rousing, a little lifting of the hand. Life comes from death. Paul is strategically speaking of death in the sense of slumber, because that's all it is. The resurrected Lord will rouse them at the appointed time, and they will be with him forever. Paul's concerned about their kind of grief. He says, verse 13, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Grief is okay for a Christian. God gives us emotions. We're called to grieve the loss of loved ones. We're called to grieve brokenness in this world. But what is wrong is grief without hope. That's what Paul's targeting here. Grief without hope. It's okay for Christians to grieve. We see this Acts chapter 2 after Stephen is martyred. He becomes the first martyr, to, martyr of the early church. The Christians mourn. They grieve. Grief is okay for Christians. Hopeless grief is not okay. Grieving without the resurrection in view is not okay for Christians. That's what he's, 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 he's encouraging them to grieve, but grieve with hope of the resurrection. Paul now points to that hope in the remainder of the passage. So a situation of deep despair over those who've died as Christians gives way to this message of glorious hope in verses 14 through 18. We see Paul's message to these distressed friends. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the basis of our hope in this life. It is the greatest message that we could ever hear, that it could ever fall upon our ears. Jesus, he's unpacking the personal work of Jesus. He died and rose again. He's our salvation captain, the one who conquered the grave. There's no one like him. He's got power over death. Do you believe that? Do you live your life? trusting in the resurrected Lord and in his resurrection power that is with you every moment of every day. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and well in each one of us. Live in the power of the resurrected Lord. This is unmistakable. Paul is saying, look, the resurrection is the basis of our hope. Don't grieve without hope. I know you've lost loved ones. Don't grieve without hope. The resurrected Lord is alive and well. Paul treats this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's that euphemism again. You're but a slumber, but a slumber before the power of the resurrected Lord. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is, all believers in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. What does it mean that Christ is a firstfruits? He's the first of the resurrection harvest. He's the down payment of a big harvest to come. He rose from the dead, and Paul says, because he rose, if you believe in him, you're going to be raised from the dead too. He's the first picking of fruit. We've got this blueberry bush in the backyard that keeps put producing blueberries. I remember just a couple weeks ago, I picked the first few, and I saw all these green ones everywhere. It's the first fruits of many more to come. Jesus is the first. He's the down payment He's the securing work of a lot more to come. You and I, if we trust in Christ, we're a part of that secondary harvest that is to come. He's the first fruits. He's the assuring work that we will be resurrected as well. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of Christian hope. Oh, cling to it with everything that you have on your most difficult of days. In the throes of sin and temptation, cling to the resurrection. In the midst of being bereaved, the loss of loved ones, the sickness in this life, cling to resurrection hope. It's the basis of our hope. We see here also an allusion to the, the Old Testament truth of the day of the Lord. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, the day of the Lord. Zechariah prophesies, then the Lord my God on that day will come and all his holy ones with him. It's an echo of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. They're coming with him. He's coming with his holy ones to establish his everlasting reign. He will not forget those who die with their faith in him. We're coming with him. We're coming with him at his return. The dead in Christ are coming with the Lord. Verse 15, for this we declare, Paul says, we declare it to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's no disadvantage of those who've died in the Lord. There's no disadvantage. The dead in Christ are coming with Christ. What is this word of the Lord? Not entirely sure. Was this a kind of a direct revelation to Paul? Was this a, a, an additional prophetic word? Likely, this is just the teaching of Jesus and expanding on Matthew 24, for example, the coming of the Son of Man. Notice the parallels. Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, the celestial vehicle, the clouds. You see it here in this passage as well, the cloud, with power and with great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Notice the parallels, the clouds, the angels, the trumpet blasts. 
And they will gather his elect from the four winds like mother hen gathers her chicks. Not one Christian will be lost. Well, the Lord Jesus is even greater than mother hen. Not one chick will be lost. Not one Christian will be lost. Gathering us from one corner of the earth to the other. This is the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And Paul's just alluding to it here. Completing what was lacking in their faith. Filling the gaps in their theology that he didn't get to do in person. Now he's doing it through the letter. Let's look again at what Paul says in verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. He's descending. This is Matthew 24 parallel. It will be loud. It will be recognizable. You will know what is happening. It will be unmistakable. The blast, the sound, the visceral response. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Again, the take-home truth is this. Believers in Jesus, whether dead or alive, at the return of Christ, will meet with him and will be with him forever. That's the take-home. There's some end times theology that people debate about. Now, I'll get into a little bit of it. The question is, is the trajectory continuing down to this earth, or is Jesus gathering people and going back to heaven? Like a a, a rapture event. People who love Jesus think differently on this. I'll share my thoughts in a moment. But there's a lot to debate over. Here's what you can't debate. Christians who die, Christians who are alive at the return of Christ, they're going to be gathered up like mother hen, all together with Jesus to be with him forever. That's the take-home truth. Don't ever lose sight of it. Not one's going to be lost. What happens when Christians die? Just kind of a little excursus here in the scripture. Here's what we know. Here's what we can say for sure. When a Christian dies, his or her soul immediately is with Jesus in paradise. Immediately in the presence of Jesus. Your body goes into the grave or goes into the water or whatever circumstances surround your body. Your soul is with Jesus immediately in bliss with him. How do we know that? Well, the scriptures say this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. My desire, Paul says, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. My, my To live is Christ, to die is gain. Why is death gain? It's because you're with Christ immediately. His soul is with Christ. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Luke 23, very well known. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, when the thief says, Jesus, please, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to the thief? That criminal who's repenting, he says, today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, there's immediacy there. When a believer in Jesus dies, his or her soul was with Jesus immediately. One more, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Again, Paul's saying, I love this life, it's, it's, it's meaningful service, but I'd rather be away from this body, this earthly tent that I inhabit, and at home with the Lord. When you die, your soul is immediately with the Lord Jesus. 
And when he returns, he's bringing you with him, your soul. Your body is then raised, imperishable, incorruptible, to inhabit that new resurrection body. That's, what's, that's what we see here. Jesus is bringing with him those who've died and who are resting with him at his bosom. Their bodies are then raised in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15, at the trumpet blast, raised imperishable to inhabit the, the, the resurrection body, and we are with him forever. Now the question is, all right, what's the trajectory? What's the trajectory? Is this a, a rapturing of people upwards, and then there's a seven years of tribulation, and then Jesus comes back again. I think that, that there's some textual clues here that indicate that perhaps the trajectory is, is downward. So, this word here, we will have a meeting with the Lord in the air. That verb, to, to meet the Lord, is also used in Acts chapter 28, Paul is going to Rome. He's on his journey to Rome. And some of the Christians in Rome hear that he's coming. And what do they do? They go out 40 miles to the Forum of Appius, this marketplace shopping area. They go out 40 miles to meet him, to welcome him, and then to usher him back into his destination of Rome. This is what you would do with a dignitary or a conquering king who went out in battle when word was heard that he, that, that conquering king or that dignitary is coming back into the city, subjects of the king would go out and line the way, and they would usher him all the way back to the destination. It's the same word there. So Christians are meeting him in the air, like meeting a dignitary. They're meeting their conquering king, ushering him, ushering him back down to this earth where he's setting up his everlasting reign. The idea of rapture, I understand some, some people believe in that. It, it, it's from a word here, caught up together, the verb caught up in this passage. The Latin there is raptura, to seize or to grasp. And so there was a, a system of theology that, that believed that they're, they're snatched up, removed from the, the tribulation, and then Christ comes back again. I just think if you, 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 as you read Scripture... Christians aren't removed from the suffering and the difficulty. That passage that I read in Matthew 24, they are facing great travail and trial and suffering. Suffering's part and parcel of the Christian life. And then the final trumpet blast blows. Suffering is over. The day of reckoning comes. Jesus is coming to gather his people with him. So the trajectory think you can make a case is downward we meet the lord as we meet a dignitary a king and we usher him down where he's establishing the everlasting heavens and the new heavens and the new earth here before us paul concludes with this verse 18 therefore encourage one another with these words he wants them to take this message and build each other up with it don't forget the reality of Christ coming and gathering his people. He's coming for you, friend. He's coming for you. If you're here today and you don't know where you stand with the Lord Jesus, what, what, the message we want to hold out to you 
is that there is a conquering king. His name is Jesus. He stepped into this broken life. He shouldered all of our sin, all of our hurt, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all on his shoulders. He bore it all. He died, buried in a tomb, rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. And anybody who will trust in him is forgiven of all their sins and enters a relationship with him that lasts forever. And when we die, we are with him, and we await his return to our resurrection body. We'll be with him forever and ever and ever. This is our greatest hope. This is our greatest need. And I want to hold it out to you that you would simply trust in Christ, receive the power and the gift of the resurrected Lord. Believers in Jesus, whether dead or living, will meet Jesus at his second coming, and we'll be with him forever. That's the take home. Charles Spurgeon encouraged Christians to think of this often, to think of your future often because it informs your perspective in your present. We need to think of heaven more frequently than we do about this life because if we think of heaven, we think of the reward, we will live better lives here and now. We will have better perspective here and now. Think of your future because it will inform your present, says Spurgeon. He says, God is our portion. Christ our companion, the spirit our comforter, earth our temporary lodge, and heaven our ultimate and eternal home. The very glory of heaven is that we shall see him, the same Christ who once died upon Calvary's cross, that we shall fall down and worship at his feet, even more that he, the Savior, shall kiss us with the kisses of his mouth and welcome us to dwell with him forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, think of heaven often. Think of your future because it will inform the quality of your life in the present. It will empower you to live well during the dark and difficult days. Think of your future. It will help you to live well in the present. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your power over the grave. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness to deliver this word to us, your revelation kept, preserved through 2,000 years of church history. God, we pray that you would empower us, your people, to be those who trust in the goodness of your word, the truth, the veracity of your word, that it would sustain us on the difficult days of this life of suffering and grief, unmet expectations, disappointments. Lord, we look to your return when we will be with you forever, every tear wiped away, all sadness gone, sin eradicated. Lord, help us along for that day and live well until then. In Jesus' name, amen.